Chapter 4, The Time of Work 1. Continuity of Work 2. The Work of Night 3. Mornings and Evenings 4. The Moments of Plenitude 1. We have already defined the notion of intellectual work in many ways. We must now study more closely its different conditions and first of all, the time that the thinker devotes to it. Study has been called a prayer to truth. Now prayer, the gospel tells us, must be uninterrupted. We ought always to pray and not to faint, Luke 18.1. I know that this text is capable of a modified interpretation. The sense would then be, do not spend a day, a week, any long period without speaking to God. But our masters have taken good care not so to narrow down words of such great import. They have taken them literally and have drawn a profound doctrine from them. Prayer is the expression of desire. Its value comes from our inward aspirations, from their tenor and their strength. Take away desire, the prayer ceases. Alter it, the prayer changes. Increase or diminish its intensity, the prayer soars upward or has no wings. Inversely, take away the expression while leaving the desire, and the prayer in many ways remains intact. As a child who says nothing but looks longingly at a toy in a shop window, and then at his smiling mother not formulated the most moving prayer, and even if he had not seen the toy, is not the desire for play innate in the child as is the thirst for movement, and the eyes of his parents a standing prayer which they grant. We ought always to pray is the same as saying, we must always desire eternal things, the temporal things which serve the eternal, our daily bread of every kind and for every need, life in all its fullness, earthly and heavenly. Apply this commentary to the active prayer which study is and you will arrive at a most valuable consideration. The thinker is consecrated, but he is actively engaged in thinking for a very few hours only. Carlyle said he did not believe that any man of letters devoted the fifth part of his time to literature. Since the greater part of his life is thus on a dead level or lower, the man of the heights has no choice but to come down and to accept it. What a gain for him if he need not yield entirely to these humbler necessities. As prayer can last all the time, because it is desire, and the desire is constant, why should not study last all the time, seeing that it also is desire, and an invocation of the true? The desire of knowledge defines our intelligence as a vital force. Instinctively, we want to know as we ask for bread. If the majority of men remain absorbed in more earthly longings, it is the thinker's special characteristic to be obsessed by the desire for knowledge. Why not keep this desire at work, constantly at work, like a stream beneath which turbines have been installed? That can be done, and psychology and experience both tell us so. The brain is always working. The turbines that I desiderate exist, they turn, they set in motion a wheel and pinion system whence ideas fly like sparks from a dynamo at full pressure. The nervous processes are linked in a continuous series and no more stop than the movements of the heart or the breathing of the lungs. What do we need in order to utilize this permanent life in the service of truth? Discipline only. The dynamos must be connected to the turbines. The turbines must be turned by the stream. The desire to know must, regularly and not intermittently, set the conscious or unconscious activity of the brain in motion. The greater part of our nervous activity goes to waste because it is not tapped. In truth, it cannot be fully turned to account, for our power over it is relative and in trying to force the yield, one would destroy the machine. But what is possible is aimed at by very few people. Habit has great weight in this matter. 
Wisely ordered, it acts like a second nature. It is here that our practical advice comes in. Try to store everything that you can, says St. Thomas to the man of study, in the cupboard of the mind, like one who aims at filling a vessel. We shall return to this comparison, which might lend itself to a misunderstanding, but for the moment we are speaking of having a care to acquire knowledge, not of how to do it. The important thing for the man of truth is to understand that truth is everywhere and that he is allowing a continuous stream to pass by him, which might set his soul working. Wisdom cries in the streets, says the Bible. She lifts her voice at the crossways. She preaches at the entry of noisy places. She makes herself heard at the gates of the city. How long, ye ignorant, will ye love your ignorance? Turn, and I will shed my spirit upon you. I hold out my hand, and no one hearkens. Proverbs 1, 20-24 This urgent call of truth, if it were listened to, would broaden a mind and enrich it more than laborious hours of study. These would still be necessary, but the light concentrated in them would gradually diffuse itself so as to touch almost the whole of life. A circuit would be established, bringing under the study lamp the results of disseminated thinking, and then returning to give that thinking a direction, a habitual bearing, and therefore fruitfulness. See what happens when you want to furnish a house. Until now, you never thought of furniture. So little indeed that going about the streets of Paris, where every fourth shop is a collector's, you did not even see the things. The shapes did not make you stop. You did not know the tendencies of fashion, the chances of a find, the specialty of this or that district, the prices, etc. On the contrary, now that your mind is awakened by desire, everything strikes you, everything holds you. Paris is like a huge store, and you know in a week what a lifetime would not have taught you. Truth is commoner than articles of furniture. It cries out in the streets and does not turn its back on us when we turn our backs on it. Ideas emerge from facts. They also emerge from conversations, chance occurrences, theaters, visits, strolls, the most ordinary books. Everything holds treasures because everything is in everything and a few laws of life and of nature govern all the rest. Would Newton have discovered gravitation if his attention to the real had not made him observant and ready to perceive that apples fall like worlds? The laws of gravitation of minds, sociological, philosophical, moral, artistic laws, apply no less universally. Every fact may give rise to a great thought, in all contemplation, even that of a fly or of a passing cloud, there is a fit occasion for endless reflection. Every light striking on an object may lead up to the sun. Every road opened is a corridor to God. Now, we could tap all that wealth if we were on the alert. If we looked at everything with an inspired spirit, we should find lessons everywhere prophecies or confirmations, premonitory signs or consequences of truth. But most often we are not on the spot or not paying attention. Everyone looks at what I am looking at, said Lemonet at St. Malo, as he stood on the seashore in a storm, but no one sees what I see. So acquire the habit of being present at this activity of the material and moral universe. Learn to look. Compare what is before you with your familiar or secret ideas. Do not see in a town merely houses, but human life and history. Let a gallery or a museum show you something more than a collection of objects. Let it show you schools of art and of life, conceptions of destiny and of nature, successive or varied tendencies of technique, of inspiration, of feeling. Let a workshop speak to you, not only of iron and wood, but of man's estate, of work, of ancient and modern social economy, of class relationships. 
Let travel tell you of mankind. Let scenery remind you of the great laws of the world. Let the stars speak to you of measureless duration. Let the pebbles on your path be to you the residue of the formation of the earth. Let the sight of a family make you think of past generations. And let the least contact with your fellows throw light on the highest conception of man. If you cannot look thus, you will become or be a man of only commonplace mind. A thinker is like a filter in which truths as they pass through leave their best substance behind. Learn to listen and listen first to anyone. If it is in the marketplace, as Malherb asserted, that one learns one's language. It is also in the marketplace, that is, in everyday life, that we can learn the language of the mind. A multitude of truths arises out of the simplest conversations. The least word listened to with attention may be an oracle. A peasant at certain moments is much wiser than a philosopher. All men are akin when they go down into their deepest selves, and of some profound impression, some return prompted by instinct or virtuous effort to original simplicity sweeps away conventions and the passions that ordinarily conceal us from ourselves and others. The words that fall from any man's lips have a ring of the divine. The whole of man is in every man, and we can get a deep reaching initiation from him. Do you not feel what you could get out of that if you were a novelist? The greatest novelist is found on the doorsteps, the least at the Sorbonne or in drawing rooms. With this difference, that the great observer, instead of mixing, holds aloof. He lives apart on a higher level, and the least little life is for him a drama. Now, what the novelist is looking for can be useful to all. For we all need this profound experience. The thinker is truly a thinker only if he finds in the least external stimulus the occasion of a limitless interior urge. It is his character to keep all his life the curiosity of childhood, to retain its vivacity of impression, its tendency to see everything under an aspect of mystery, its happy faculty of everywhere finding wonderment full of consequences. However, be very specially on the watch when you have the good fortune to talk with someone who knows and who thinks. How sad it is that superior men are of so little service to those about them. In practice, they are set down as simpletons. People see in them what they have in common with others, not their own rare qualities. There is a treasure there, and the onlookers play with the key, but do not open the lock. People smile sometimes at their awkwardness, at their little absent-minded oddities, and there is no harm in that. What is stupid is to assume an attitude of superiority which forgets the greatness of the man. Men of worth are few enough not to be thus left unused. It is true that they use their own resources, and everyone uses them unconsciously. But if we know what we are doing, we can get wisdom and a stimulus from them, which may decide the whole course of a life. Many saints, great captains, explorers, scholars, artists, became what they were for having met an outstanding personality and heard the ring of a soul. The echoes of that silent call went on reverberating in them to the end of their days, a persistent voice driving them onwards. They were born on an invisible wave. The word of a great man is sometimes, like that of God, creative. But it is an understood thing that great men are not great until after their death. The majority of people do not recognize them. Sitting beside you is perhaps a man as great as Descartes, and you do not listen to him. You do not question him. You argue with him in a carping spirit. You cut him short with trivial remarks. And if he is not quite so great, but has a fine mind, why do you allow him to bury his wealth or to carry it away in silence? By observing and listening, I do not mention reading because we shall come back to that. You will learn to reflect. 
You will assimilate and adapt to your own needs what you have acquired. Great discoveries are but reflections on facts common to all. People have passed that way myriads of times and seen nothing. And one day the man of genius notices the links between what we do not know and what is every minute before our eyes. What is knowledge but the slow and gradual cure of our blindness? It is true that our observations need to be prepared by earlier studies and solutions. One finds what one is looking for. Only to him that hath is given. That is why I spoke of an interchange between the inner light and the outer. Still the fact remains that the mind must be perpetually ready to reflect, and perpetually ready to see, to hear, to shoot the bird as it flies, like a good sportsman. Let us be more precise, and say that this alertness of mind can be of advantage not only to our general culture, but to our specialty, to our actual present study, to the work in hand. Carry your problems about with you. The hackney horse does his run and goes back to his stall. The free courser always has his nostrils to the wind. Since truth is everywhere and all things are connected, why not study each question in contact with kindred questions? Everything should contribute to our specialty. Everything should bear witness for or against our theses. To a large extent, the universe is what we make of it. The painter everywhere sees form, color, movement, expression. The architect balances masses. The musician perceives rhythm and sound. The poet finds subjects for metaphor. A thinker sees ideas in act. We are not here advocating any narrow particularism. It is a question of method. One cannot follow up everything. While keeping an eye open for general observation, one devotes extra attention to a particular line of research. And by always thinking of it, like Newton, one gathers together the elements of the work to be produced later. To keep a part of one's thought always expectant is the great secret. Man's mind is a ruminant. The cow looks away into the distance, chews slowly, bites off here a tuft and there a twig, takes the whole field for her own, and the horizon as well, producing her milk from the field, feeding her dim soul on the horizon. We are taught to live in the presence of God. Can we not also live in the presence of truth? Truth is, as it were, the special divinity of the thinker. Some particular truth or some object of study may be present to us every moment. Is it wise, is it normal to leave the man of research behind in the study, to have as it were two souls, the soul of the worker and the soul of the easygoing everyday man? This dualism is not natural. It gives ground for thinking that the pursuit of the true is a business with us instead of being a noble passion. All things have their season, says the Bible, and I agree that we cannot avoid making a division of time. But since, as a matter of fact, we are always thinking, why not utilize that thought to the advantage of what we have in mind? Someone may say that such tension is incompatible with mental health and with the conditions of life. Granted, but then it is not a question of tension, nor even ordinarily of actual will. I have spoken of habit. Let us speak, if you prefer, of subconsciousness. Our mind has the faculty of functioning of itself. If we prepare its operation ever so little and lightly trace the outline of the channels in which its mysterious currents will flow. If the desire for knowledge is well anchored and the passion for truth alight in you, if your conscious attention has often been brought to bear on those facts of life which are calculated to feed the flame and to satisfy the desire, then you have turned your mind into a greyhound unleashed. It has not to make any further effort it obeys a new nature.
You think as easily in a definite direction as formerly your thought wandered at random. This direction is no doubt only approximate, and excessive strain would be absurd. But should we reject what can be done by reason of what cannot? You have here an immense resource. You can use it by putting a little discipline into an operation that the brain is always performing, but without your intervention and without control. Regulate that operation and let your brain also be an intellectual worker. In practice, you will perceive that this is not in the least tiring, that on the contrary, it saves a great deal of fatigue for the unsought finds made like that just by looking about, made simply because one has resolved and trained oneself not to be blind. Those discoveries that are often happiest because spontaneous greatly encourage the seeker. They keep him alert and joyous. He waits with delight for the hour of quiet in which he can fix and develop the newly acquired idea. Very often, one will light in that way on the transition that was hard to find, the turning point that sitting at one's table stopped dead at some point of view and unable to get away from it, one would have sought in vain. What had no immediate connection with the work leads to something basic in it. The toil of study is now all lit up. One sees where one is going and one hopes soon to have such another stroke of good fortune. This chance process corresponds to the unpredictable workings of the brain and to the obscure operation of the association of ideas. A number of laws apply here. Without there being any law to regulate their application in one instance or another, at one time or another. And since the whole process takes place without us, I mean without any deliberate act of will, merely under the impression of the desire which is the soul of the thinker and which characterizes him as play does childhood and love woman, it does not involve the strain that people imagine. Does a woman out walking get tired of watching for the admiration of the passers-by? A girl of being ready for a laugh or a little boy of frolicking? The mind on the lookout for truth through love, not through compulsion, through a tendency instinctive at first, then cultivated, but cultivated lovingly, passionately, will not toil any more than these. Such a mind is at play like a fowler with his gun. It is enjoying a useful and delightful sport. It loves its activity, and nothing is more unlike the precise and deliberate effort of the hours of concentration. Thus the wise man, at all times and on every road, carries a mind ripe for acquisitions that ordinary folk neglect. The humblest occupation is for him a continuation of the loftiest. His formal calls are fortunate chances of investigation. His walks are voyages of discovery. What he hears and his silent answers are a dialogue that truth carries on with herself within him. Wherever he is, his inner universe is comparing itself with the other. His life with life, his work with the incessant work of all beings. And as he comes forth from the narrow space in which his concentrated study is done, one gets the impression, not that he is leaving the true behind, but that he is throwing his door wide open so that the world may bring to him all the truth given out in its mighty activities. Section 2. Work of Night. Per Grotri insistently recommends us not to exclude from continuous work the hours of lethargy and darkness. He wants night to be made to work. This advice rests on psychology and on experience. Sleep is a relaxing of tension. The conscious will lays down its function, ceases to trouble about living, aims at no purpose, and thus finds itself largely given over to the general condition of nature. The attitude of the sleeper is no empty symbol. 
He lies nearer to earth, as if he said to nature, take me back. Long enough have I held out against your powers. Standing, I have combated your determinism against the equalization of all forces, which is the law of this perishable earth. I have set up the strong reaction of life. I now surrender until the moment comes to take up the struggle afresh. The intensity of life being thus in abeyance, the transmission belt of the human motor having passed from the free will of the individual to the free play of cosmic forces, there results a new operation which has its own laws, which follows paths unknown to clear consciousness and brings about combinations foreign to our will or to the caprices of our wide awake moments. Our inner powers are grouped in a new way. Our thoughts arrange themselves. They intersect. The energy set free by the cessation of activity is used effortlessly. To be able to take advantage of this process without dislocating its rhythm is a fresh resource for the thinker. It is not a question of keeping awake. On the contrary, the night walker is a bad worker. We have said that we must obey the demands of general hygiene, which should be even more insistent in the case of a man of study. But sleep itself is a worker, a partner of the daily toil. We can make its forces serve us, utilize its laws, profit by that filtering process, that clarification which takes place during the self-surrender of the night. A bit of brain work begun, an idea just started, an idea that some interior or exterior happening had prevented from fully shaping itself or finding its natural place, is developed during the night and links up with others. Do not miss this opportunity to gain something. Fix, before it vanishes again into the night of the mind, this light which may help you. How will you set about it? Sometimes no particular ingenuity is required. When you wake, you find the collaboration of sleep all performed and recorded. The work of the previous day appears to you in a clearer light. A new path, a virgin region lies before you. Some relationship of ideas, of facts, of expressions, some happy comparison or illuminating image, a whole passage perhaps, or a plan ready to be realized, will have surged into your consciousness. The whole is there, clear and distinct. You will only need at the right moment to utilize what hypnos has condescended to do for you. But ordinarily, the thing happens differently. Nature is not at our command. She goes her way. Her river brings gold in its current, but we ourselves have to recover, not to allow to be engulfed, the precious deposit washed along to us in the treasure-bearing waves. Gleams of light come in a few minutes' sleeplessness, in a second, perhaps. You must fix them. To entrust them to the relaxed brain is like riding on water, there is every chance on the morrow that there will be no slightest trace left of any happening. Do better than that. Have at hand a notebook or a box of slips. Make a note without waking up too fully, without turning on the light if possible, then fall back into the shadows. To get the thought thus off your mind will perhaps help your sleep instead of disturbing it. If you say, I will remember, I will remember, that determination is more likely to interfere with your rest than a quick jotting. Remember that sleep is a relaxing of the will. It is in the morning, on first awaking, that the flashes come. You open your eyes, and it is as if the inner eye also opened, drawing in light from a fresh world. The earth has revolved, the heavens of the intelligence have not now the same aspect. Other constellations are shining. Take a good look at this utterly new spectacle and do not lose a moment before fixing its broad outlines. Note down its leading features, its turning points, 
enough to determine all the details when you have time to come back to it. Has experienced instances of early morning lucidity that are sometimes surprising, almost miraculous. Complete treatises have thus grown fully clear after a long and laborious series of complicated studies during which the author felt as if he were lost in a wood with no open space or vista ahead anywhere. Inventions have come about like that. Elements scattered in the mind, old experiments or bits of information of no apparent interest have converged and problems have been solved of themselves by a spontaneous classification of the mental images which stood for the idea of their solution. Quick to your notebook when such a piece of good fortune befalls you. Follow up the idea as long as it keeps coming. Develop it, add nothing of your own. Without any disturbing intervention, with your attention submissively fixed on nature which is thus at work, pull gently on the chain that has been formed, draw out the links, the little accessory chains that hang from them. Note down the proportions, the dependences, with no consideration of style. I mean no deliberate effort at style, for it may happen that precious elements of style reveal themselves in that fashion. When the drawer is empty and the chain of new thought seems to have been wholly drawn out of it, stop writing. But be sure for a while to keep your eyes fixed on your wealth. It may yet increase. The chain may yet develop new links. The secondary chains may become more numerous and be again subdivided. That is all so precious that not a particle must be lost. It is so much labor saved for the day. Night, collaborating loyally, has given you without your stir a complete day of 24 hours, perhaps even weeks, the time that it would have taken to hammer out by deliberate effort the splendid jewel now presented to you. However, it is not enough to take care to gather the fruit. Sleep works of itself, but it works on existing material. It creates nothing. It is skilled in combining and simplifying, in bringing things to a head, but it can only work on the findings of experience and the labor of the day. Its work must be prepared for it. To count on it means to count first of all on oneself. Monks have the custom, as old as the devout life, of depositing their point for meditation each evening like a seed in the furrows of the night. They hope on awaking to find the seed already softened, penetrated by the moisture of the ground, and perhaps germinating. It will grow more quickly in the sunshine of reflection and of grace. Of this practice, which might be, well be widespread among Christians, one can also sow the seed of one's work in the field of night. The human soul is rich. Two seeds can be planted side by side without harming each other. Fall asleep. Entrust to God and to your own soul the question that is preoccupying you, the idea that is slow in developing its virtualities or that eludes your grasp. Do not make any effort that would delay sleep. On the contrary, rest quietly in this thought. The universe is working for me. Determinism is the slave of free will and will turn its millstone while I rest. I can suspend my effort. The heavens are revolving, and as they turn, they set moving in my brain delicate machinery that I might put out of order. I sleep. Nature keeps watch. God keeps watch. And tomorrow I shall gather a little of the fruit of their work. In this quiet spirit, you relax completely, more than if you thought anxiously of a morrow without help, more above all than by living over again at night. As so often happens, the worries of the day, worries exaggerated by semi-unconsciousness, which poison the night and will be there again in the morning to serve you up their bitter drought. Just as gentle and regular work can give harmony to the day, 
the unconscious work of night can bring peace and keep at bay wandering imaginations, crazy fancies that are exhausting or sinful, nightmares. If you take a child gently by the hand, his turbulence subsides. We are in no way recommending excessive strain, nor any turning of night into day. No, you must sleep. Sleep renews nature and is indispensable. But we are saying that night, as night can itself work, that it gives counsel, that sleep, as sleep is a serviceable craftsman, that rest, as rest, is an additional strength. It is entirely in accordance with their nature, and not by doing violence to their proper function, that we aim at using these helps. Rest is not death, it is life, and all life bears fruit. While you yourself can gather the fruit of sleep, do not leave it to the birds of night. Section 3. Mornings and Evenings Hence the extreme importance, for the worker as well as for the religious man, of the mornings and evenings. One cannot prepare, supervise, and end the hours of rest with an attentive spirit if those that immediately proceed and follow are left to chance. The morning is sacred. In the morning our soul, refreshed, looks out on life as from a turning point from which we see it in one view. Our destiny lies outspread before us. We resume our task. This is the moment to accept it afresh and to confirm by an express act our triple vocation as men, Christians, and intellectuals. Philip, remember that thou art a man. These words of the Macedonian slave to his master are spoken to us by the light of day. When falling on our eyes, it also awakens the lights of the soul. A man, I say, not in a general sense, but specified in a precise instance, a man who stands here before God, a single, unique personality. And no matter how unimportant he is, alone capable of fulfilling his own proper place. Will not this man, emerging renewed, and as it were, reborn from the hours of consciousness, cast a rapid glance over his life as a whole, mark the point he has reached, map out the coming day, and so start out with springing step and clear mind on a new stage of his journey? Such will be the combined effort of the first moment of waking, of morning prayer, of meditation, and above all, of the Mass if one has the possibility of hearing it or the happiness of saying it. Waking must be a sursum corda. To repeat a form of prayer at that moment is an excellent practice. To say it aloud is better. For as psychologists know, our voice has an effect of self-suggestion on us and plays towards us the part of a double. That is a slave that we may not neglect he has authority from us, he is us, and his voice reaches us with the strange domination of one who is at once the same and different. Children are taught to give their heart to God. The intellectual, a child in that respect, must in addition give his heart to truth. He must remember that he is her servant, repudiate her enemies within himself, love her enemies without, so that they may return to her and willingly accept the efforts that for the coming day, truth asks of him. Next comes prayer. Per Gratri advises the intellectual to say prime, which would have Compline for its pendant in the evening. And indeed, there are no prayers more beautiful, more efficacious, more inspiring. The majority of liturgical prayers are masterpieces, but these are full and sweet like the rising and setting of a star. Try. You will never be able to say any other prayers. All true life is in them, all nature, and to prepare your work with them is like going out on a journey through a wide open door flooded with sunshine. Whatever prayer he chooses, that of the intellectual should emphasize for a moment what is especially appropriate to himself, should extract its fruit and form from it the good resolution 
that will be kept by Christian work. An act of faith in the lofty truths that are the foundation of knowledge. An act of hope that God will help us to light as well as to virtue. An act of love for him who is infinitely lovable and for those whom our study aims at bringing near to him. The pater to ask for our bread and for the food of our intelligence. An ave addressed to the woman clothed with the sun victorious over error as over evil. In these forms of words, and in others, the intellectual finds his needs expressed, reminds himself of his task, and he can, without isolating his specialty from Christian life as a whole, profit by what is providentially deposited for him in the common treasure. Meditation is so essential to the thinker that we need not urge it anew. We have recommended the spirit of prayer. Where can it get more food than in these morning acts of contemplation, in which the mind rested, not yet caught up afresh in the cares of the day, born and lifted up on the wings of prayer, rises with ease towards those founts of truth, which study draws on laboriously. If you can hear Holy Mass or say it, Will its vastness and fullness not take possession of you? Will you not see from this other cavalry, from this upper room where the farewell banquet is renewed, the whole of humanity standing round you? That humanity with which you must not lose contact, that life lit up by the words of the Savior, that poverty succored by his riches, which it is your task to succor along with him which you must enlighten and do your part to save while saving yourself. The mass really puts you into a state of eternity, into the spirit of the universal church. And in the ite misa est, you are ready to see a mission, ascending out of your zeal to the destitution of the mad and ignorant earth. The morning hours thus bedewed with prayer, freshened and vivified by the breezes of the spirit, cannot fail to be fruitful. You will begin them with faith. You will go through them with courage. The whole day will be spent in the radiance of the early light. Evening will fall before the brightness is exhausted, as the year ends leaving some seed in the barns for the year to come. Evening, how little, usually, people know about making it holy and quiet, about using it to prepare for really restorative sleep how it is wasted, polluted, misdirected. Let us not dwell on what men of pleasure make of it. Their condition is alien to ours. But look at those serious people called workers, businessmen, industrialists, public officials, big merchants. I speak of them in the mass. When evening comes, they lay down the reins and throw off thought, giving their minds up to the dissipation which is supposed to refresh them. Dining, smoking, playing cards, talking noisily, frequenting the theaters or the music halls, gaping at the cinema, and going to bed with minds relaxed. Yes, indeed, relaxed, but like a violin with all its strings completely slackened. What a labor next day to tune them all up again. I know industrialists who find their relaxation in reading Pascal, Montaigne, Ronsard, Racine, Deep in a comfortable armchair, well lit from behind, beside the fire, their family around them, quiet, or in the buzz of pleasant activity, they live a while after having toiled all day. This is their moment. This is the moment of the man, when the specialist has done facing up with head and heart to innumerable difficulties. An intellectual, if he does not need this mental compensation, needs the quietness even more. His evening should be a time of stillness, his supper a light reflection, his play the simple task of setting the day's work in order and preparing the morrows. He needs his compline, this time I take the word figuratively, to complete and to inaugurate, for every completion of the continuous work which we postulate is a beginning as well as a terminal point. We close only to open again. 
Evening is the connecting medium between the daily sections, which taken together make a life. In the morning we shall have forthwith to start living. We must get ready in the evening, and we must prepare the night, which after its fashion, and without our intervention, links together the periods of our conscious toil. In spite of the passionate and self-interested illusion of those who maintain that a part of man must be set aside for the life of pleasure, dissipation is not rest, it is exhaustion. Rest cannot be found in scattering one's energies. Rest means giving up all effort and withdrawing towards the fount of life. It means restoring our strength, not expending it foolishly. I know indeed that to expend is sometimes to acquire. That is true of sport, of recreation, and we shall not merely tolerate, we shall demand such active relaxation. But that is not the normal function of the evening. For the evening there is a double rest, spiritual and physical. Rest in God and rest in Mother Nature. Now the first comes from prayer, the other, the rest of the body, precedes the more complete rest of the night and must lead up to it. One should give oneself up in the evening to the quietly regular activities of which night breathing is the model. The wise thing is to let the easy bent of nature assert itself, to let habit take the place of initiative, to let keen activity give way to a simple familiar routine. In a word, to cease willing up to a point so that the renunciation of night may begin. And wisdom will appear in the ordering of this less intense life, of this peaceful semi-activity. The family will have a share in it. Quiet conversation will set its seal on the union of souls. There will be an exchange of the day's impressions, of plans for the morrow. Views and purposes will be strengthened. The passing of the day will have its consolations. Harmony will reign, and the evening be a worthy eve of the festival that every new day should be for the Christian. The sleeper often unconsciously takes up the position that he had long ago in his mother's womb. That is a symbol. Rest is a return to our origins, the origins of life, of strength, of inspiration. It is a retempering that is signified by our withdrawal in the evening from the world and into ourselves. Now, retempering cannot possibly be obtained through fussy activity. It is rather like seeking a refuge, renewing the vigor of the human spirit by peaceful concentration. It is a restoration of organic life and of holy life in us by easing off happily, by prayer, silence, and sleep. Section 4. The Moments of Plenitude We come at length, after speaking of the preparation and the prolongation and the profitable interruption of work and of rest in view of work, to the work itself properly so called and the time devoted to studious concentration, to full effort. Accordingly, we shall give the name of full moments, moments of plenitude, to these culminating periods of the duration of our intellectual life. The greater part of this treatise has no other object than to consider how to use that time. Here we are speaking only of securing it, putting it on a stable basis, preserving it, guarding the interior cell against all that threatens to invade it. Seeing that the moments of our life have very unequal values, and that for each of us, the adjustment of these values obeys different laws, we cannot lay down any absolute rule, but we must insist on this one thing. You must study yourself, consider what your life is, what it enables you to do, what it furthers or excludes, what of itself it suggests for the hours of intense activity. Will these be in the morning or in the evening? or partly in the morning and partly in the evening. You alone can decide because you alone know your obligations and your character on which the mapping out of your day depends. 
When you have only a few free hours and can place them at will, morning seems to deserve the preference. Night has renewed your strength. Prayer has given you wings. Peace reigns all about you, and the buzzing swarm of distractions has not begun. But for certain people, there may be counterindications. If you sleep badly, you may be upset and dull in the morning. Or solitude may be lacking, and then you must wait for the hours of isolation. Whatever decision you have made, the chosen moments must be carefully secured, and you must take all personal precautions so as to use them to the fullest. You must see to it beforehand that nothing happens to crowd up, waste, shorten, or interfere with this precious time. You want it to be a time of plenitude, then shut remote preparation out of it. Make all the necessary arrangements beforehand. Know what you want to do and how you want to do it. Gather your materials, your notes, your books. Avoid having to interrupt your work for trifles. Further, in order to keep this time for your work and to keep it really free, rise punctually and promptly, breakfast lightly, avoid futile conversations, useless calls, limit your correspondence to what is strictly necessary, gag the newspapers. These rules, which we have given as a general safeguard for the life of study, apply most of all to its intense hours. If you have so foreseen and settled everything, you can get straight at your work. You will be able to plunge deep into it, to get absorbed, and to make progress. Your attention will not be distracted, your efforts scattered. Avoid half work more than anything. Do not imitate those people who sit long at their desks, but let their minds wander. It is better to shorten the time and use it intensely to increase its value, which is all that counts. Do something or do nothing at all. Do ardently whatever you decide to do. Do it with your might and let the whole of your activity be a series of vigorous fresh starts. Half work, which is half rest, is good neither for rest nor for work. Then invite inspiration. If the goddess does not always obey, she is always sensible of sincere effort. You must not strain yourself to excess but you must find your direction, aim at your goal, and put out of your field of vision, like the marksman, everything else but the target. Renew the spirit of prayer. Keep yourself in the state of eternity, your heart submissive to truth, your mind obeying its great laws, your imagination outspread like a wing, your whole being conscious of the silent stars above you, even by day, when they still shine faithfully. Beneath your feet, far below, will the sounds of life be. You will not notice them. You will hear only the music of the spheres, which symbolizes in Scipio's dream, the harmony of the forces of creation. Thus to open up one's being to truth, to withdraw from all else, and if I may say so, to take a ticket for a different world is true work. That is the kind of work of which we speak when we say that two hours daily are enough to yield a tangible, worthwhile result. Evidently, they are not much, but they really suffice if all the conditions are fulfilled. And they are better than the 15 hours a day that so many loud talkers boast of to the echoes. Those fabulous figures have indeed been reached by certain people of abnormal capacity for work. They are instances of what might be called a lucky monstrosity, unless indeed that procedure be ruinous folly. Normal workers estimate at from two to six hours the time that can be steadily used with fruitful results. The principal question does not lie in the number of hours, but in their use and in the mind. He who knows the value of time always has enough. Not being able to lengthen it, he intensifies its value. The first of all, he does nothing to shorten it. Time, like gold, has thickness, 
a solid metal, well struck and pure in line, has more value than the thin leaf from the gold beater's hammer. Gold beater, badage, the resemblance of the words is suggestive. Many people are the dupe of appearances, of vague and muddle-headed intentions. Talk all the time and never work. We must remark that the period of intensive work cannot be any more uniform than our intellectual life as a whole. Proportionally, it has the same phases. One gets into swing gradually, sometimes with great difficulty. One reaches one's maximum and then grows tired. There is a complete cycle, fresh morning, burning midday, evening decline. We must be the Josue of that evening so that the battle, which is always too short, may be continued. We shall have to speak later of the conditions of this careful economy of the work-time light. Here I indicate only one. You must defend your solitude with a fierceness that makes no distinctions whatever. If you have duties, satisfy their demands at the normal time. If you have friends, arrange suitable meetings. If unwanted visitors come to disturb you, graciously shut the door on them. It is important during the hours sacred to work, not only that you should not be disturbed, but that you should know you will not be disturbed. Let perfect security on that score protect you so that you can apply yourself intensely and fruitfully. You cannot take too many precautions about this. Keep a Cerberus at your door. Every demand on you from outside is a loss of inner power and may cost your mind some precious discovery. When half gods go, the gods arrive. But note that this complete solitude, the only favorable atmosphere for work, need not be understood physically. Someone else's presence may double, instead of disturbing, your quietude. To have near you another worker equally ardent, a friend absorbed in some kindred thought or occupation, a chosen spirit who understands your work, joins in it, seconds your effort by silent affection and a keenness fired by your own, that is not a distraction, it is a help. Sometimes in the public libraries, you breathe in a sense of concentration. It is like an atmosphere bearing you up. You are invaded by a sort of religious impression. You dare not fall short of it or let your mind wander. The more you are surrounded by these adorers of the true in spirit and in truth, the more you are alone with the true alone and the easier and more delightful your contemplation becomes. A young couple in the husband's study, where the wife's work table or basket has its place, where love reigns in silence, its wings outstretched to the wind of inspiration and some noble dream, is another picture of work. In the oneness of the life entered on by Christian marriage, there is a place for oneness of thought and the stillness necessary for it. The more two sister souls are together, the more secure they are against the outside world. Yet the fact remains that solitude, once understood and arranged for, must be obstinately defended. You must listen to no one, neither indiscreet friends, nor ununderstanding relatives, nor chance comers, nor charity itself. You cannot be charitable in every direction at once. You belong to truth. Serve her first. Except in certain clear and obvious cases, nothing should take precedence of your vocation. The time of a thinker, when he really uses it, is in reality charity to all. Only thus do we appreciate it properly. The man of truth belongs to the human race with truth itself. There is no risk of selfishness when one has isolated oneself jealously to serve this sublime and universal benefactor of mankind. However, you must use your ingenuity to win the affectionate forgiveness of those from whom you turn away to work, and whom sometimes you hurt by doing so. Purchase your solitude. Pay for your liberty by attentive thoughtfulness and kind acts of service. 
It is desirable that your retirement should be more advantageous to others than your companionship. In any case, let it be the least possible burden to them. Do your part and let your relative independence be counterpoised by your absolute dependence when the time for your duties comes again.